positive in prison. I started in practice in Dublin 8 in 1978 and probably within six months started to hear about drug problems. Possibly, like a lot of doctors, we wanted nothing to do with it. These people were alien. But then, within a year, we began to see young teenagers brought in by their parents with problems, kids with hepatitis B. These were the kids of our patients, and so they were no longer alien. We realised there was a growing problem. Dr Fergus O'Kelly's medical practice is in an area of Dublin's inner city where communities of large families live in blocks of social housing. In 1979, young men and women living here faced unemployment and emigration. It was a perfect place to push drugs, and with cheap heroin newly available from Iran, dealers in Dublin went to work. Research in one community showed that by 1982, one in ten people aged 15 to 24 had tried heroin and that those who used the drug did so once every day. Dr O'Kelly was witnessing the start of an epidemic for which Ireland was ill-prepared. I thought you just had to tell someone in the health authorities that there was a problem and they would do something about it. I was rather naive. That was one of my first lessons in life. If you identify a problem, it's kind of with you. And it's your responsibility to deal with it. Mara de Lacey worked with drug users on the streets of London and Glasgow. But by 1982, she was back home in Dublin. Here, in the capital's inner city communities, she recognised the conditions in which heroin use could fester. We were looking at a whole population of people who would have been children of heavy drinkers, alcohol-dependent drinkers, coming from a poverty background, particularly in Dublin 1. Unemployment came directly as the result of the containerisation of the docks. These people would have worked as dockers, stevedores, and all that had stopped. A whole area of work dried up. Jobs may have been hard to find, but heroin wasn't. And young men and women from these communities now began to experiment with the drug. They had little idea of the consequences. Dr Fergus O'Kelly. Of course, the drug users who started using heroin were naive. They didn't know. The first time many of them would report going into withdrawal, they didn't know what it was. They thought they had flu. They used drugs last weekend, and now it's Thursday, and they felt awful. One sign Dublin was in the midst of a heroin epidemic was the increase in drug charges brought by police. In 1979, just five. Three years later, 177. Those convicted or put on remand were sent to Mountjoy Prison, where heroin users now mixed with the prison's hundreds of other inmates and where little was done to address the problems around drug use. John Lonergan was prison governor. There was a lack of support for families at that time. I realised they just couldn't cope. They had too many children. There were huge families at 10, 12, 14 children with no resources at all. In some cases, there were three and four children from one family in prison. From listening to the radio, watching TV, we knew the whole AIDS issue was coming up. 
In Ireland, HIV-AIDS was first identified in 1982 amongst gay and bisexual men. But three-quarters of heroin users injected the drug. Many shared needles, and by 1989, drug users with AIDS outnumbered gay or bisexual patients. In Mountjoy Prison, where a third of inmates had at some stage injected heroin, HIV became a new but poorly understood fact of life. At Mountjoy, there was total ignorance, absolute ignorance by staff, by doctors, by bureaucrats and by prisoners as well. HIV began to surface and people began to talk about it in a general way, media, about intravenous drug abusers being highly likely or at high risk of hepatitis or HIV. Mountjoy was unique in that a huge percentage of the population were IDUs the intravenous drug users. It was a committal prison, so prisoners were coming directly from the courts. They were committed to Mountjoy and then referred on. But if you were a chronic drug user, you were likely to stay in Mountjoy. And eventually, probably up to 80% of the population there were IDUs. Paul Hatton was, and still is, client care manager for drugs treatment charity Coolmine. I was an XIV user myself. And when I first heard about the HIV thing, I thought, mm. the first person I met coming in for treatment when I was working, the first person that was HIV, it would have been 1983, probably. Well, I remembered sharing needles with him. So my thing was, shit, I probably have that now myself. I knew he didn't get sick straight away. I thought, ah, shit, I remember giving him the loan of a syringe. I wonder if I got it myself. And even though I was working in the treatment service, working with people, having the fear of even going and getting tested. The first Mountjoy prisoners tested positive for HIV in 1985, but they received little information about the illness and no psychological care. People in prison were being given sort of half information and they worried about themselves a lot in the sense that if they had cold sores or chest infections, they were convinced they had AIDS. Not HIV, AIDS. Out of the blue, a number of them went to the doctor and said they'd like their blood tested. There was no counselling, there was no preparation, nothing. Even for prison drug counsellors like Paul, Precautionary HIV tests came with little emotional or psychological preparation. We were working in here, actually, three of us, and I remember the doctor nun came in and she said, here, I'm doing routine HIV tests, do you want to do them? And we said, yeah, and got the blood tests. And she's only gone an hour, and you start thinking, I wonder now. So I was told, nah, you're Grant, one of the guys with me, you have it. No counselling, you just got the results. And I'm just sitting thinking, there were people getting tested, and how that would impact emotionally on them, mentally. Bloods were taken, and in the space of about three, four weeks, there were about 50 or 60, a huge number, and they were sent off to the laboratory and the first one came back in October and it was a guy called Anthony Hogan. 
He went to the doctor in the morning and the doctor said to him, your results are back. You're positive. You have HIV and you'll be lucky if you're alive in two or three years. The time frame is about five years maximum, but you'll be lucky if you have two or three. And out the door. Mara de Lacy set up the Analyphy Drugs Project with Father Frank Brady. It was a drop-in centre, offering support and treatment to addicts. They also worked with prisoners at Mountjoy. Tony Hogan. Oh, God. Tony Hogan was the first person diagnosed within the Irish prison system. He was ill. And the prison's reaction was unhelpful. John Lonergan, prison governor. I went to see the poor fellow. I knew him as a prisoner personally. I went to see him in the general office. He was in bits, naturally. He was very worried, very concerned about himself. I spoke to him about it. I didn't have the medical knowledge to say it's not as bad as you think or there's a cure for it. At that time, there was very little knowledge and no treatment. There was a total absence of anything positive to say. Father Frank Brady. I remember, I wasn't a frequent visitor to the governor, but I happened to be in his office that day. It was chaotic. Just run, get plastic bags, get everything into plastic bags and get them out. Get Tony out! John Lonergan. Later that day, he was released out of the prison because of the danger. The hype had started, then the anxiety had started. Anthony Hogan went out and my information was that there was no contact with his family, no explanations, no education, and they were terrified of him. They wouldn't use a cup, they wouldn't use a plate. His own family, through ignorance. In Ireland, as elsewhere, there was little written policy on how to manage prisoners with AIDS. In Mountjoy, general ignorance about the condition led to prison officers fearing for their safety and to the administration enforcing ill-conceived work practices. Many of these compounded myths around AIDS and stigmatised men who, like Tony Hogan, were suffering an illness few knew anything about. Dr Fergus O'Kelly. There was all kinds of panic. They imported those space helmets and all that for uh, prison guards. And some of the hospitals were also disgraceful in the ways they were treating patients. Slipping dinners under the doors. And no confidentiality, by the way, which was another issue, none at all. Because within minutes, the whole jail knew that there was a prisoner with AIDS. He was taken out immediately because people were afraid he'd be killed. People were terrified. It was a death sentence. Some of it was quite shameful from all kinds of professional bodies who were protecting themselves. They're feeding you under the door for fear that you might be able to catch this thing. All the officers were moving around in suits. Space suits? And all the plastic. Paper cups and plastic knives and forks. And don't touch them. They'll contaminate you. The Department of Justice, I can say, had no strategy. None whatsoever. The Prison Officers Association made the running. They had a very negative reaction to the whole thing. Their policy was that these guys needed to be segregated from everybody else. And staff should be equipped with masks... Gloves, all this sort of stuff. Tony Hogan. Oh, God. 
Just take a plastic bag, put everything into it and kick them out. And very rapidly, when they realised they could possibly get out if they were diagnosed... You see, uh, they gave him a release immediately. So there was a flood of requests in the prison for testing, with, with no recognition of the implications of testing. They didn't realise the problem was going to be as big as it was. I don't think there were many people in prison for drug use per se. They were in prison for armed robbery, kiting checks, dipping pockets, bag snatches, things like that. I think that initially, when they started testing, they thought they might have five, six, seven. Within a couple of weeks, I'd say about 20 fellows came back with positive readings. The strategy of releasing them was going to run out very quickly. Some were released, and they were fellows with eight or ten years in for very serious crimes. So they set aside a wing in what was known as the middle-class prison, which is Arbor Hill, for sex offenders. You know, Mickey Mouse could run it. Sex offenders are generally very easygoing people, a lot of elderly people, a lot of clergy. They could look after themselves. So the staff got spoiled. They had to deal with no aggression, no difficulties, no nothing. Now, you can imagine busloads from Mount Joy. They'd be hyper, some of them, arriving at Arbor Hill. The staff were terrified of them. They had no skills in dealing with them. And sure, it was a disaster. They rioted. They wrecked the place. They went up on the roof. In no time at all, they were back at Mount Joy again. As the fear and confusion continued, it was obvious an alternative AIDS management policy was needed. And to prison officers, it was clear what that policy should be. Segregation. There was a unit at Mount Joy that was used for provisional IRA prisoners coming up for family visits. It was called the Separation Unit. The Prison Officers Association decided from the beginning that there's only one way of dealing with this, and it's segregation. They insisted on it, and they got their way. No one spoke to me about it. They just decided... And I was governor of the bloody prison. Mountjoy was a rat-infested drug swamp. Yeah, filthy. A filthy environment where everybody was demoralised. Staff, prisoners. Brian Horgan and Sally O'Reilly were two of only four probation and welfare officers at Mountjoy Prison. They worked with 560 inmates. As the amount of prisoners with HIV grew, Sally and Brian fought fear and paranoia in the prison. The prisoners themselves were very worried because at that stage they all knew they were going to die. Um, when other prisoners refused to have people with HIV in, in their environment, the solution was uh, to put them in a separate building at Mountjoy. Now, not, not just a separate wing, a separate building altogether. Of course, nobody wanted to get tested because they knew if they were found positive what the implications were. They'd be shipped over to the separation unit. So they'd got tested outside and never declared it. So there was always a sense that people could be infected anywhere. Now they had, they had their own kitchen. Their food was cooked separately. They stayed in that unit with a very small exercise yard outside, but, um, but it was overcrowded. Very. And there was friction between prisoners. Not, not, uh, not in terms of gangs like you have nowadays, but people who'd crossed each other on the inside. So in many ways they were seriously isolated and discriminated against. Uh, prisoners would regularly have a protest, and, and the protest 
consisted of cutting themselves. There would be blood just all over. Because of the ethos at the time, everyone was terrified of blood or any bodily fluids. Yeah, and, and the prison officers would just back off and close the doors and left them to themselves. Yeah. And after a while, they began to feel this wasn't an appropriate response, so they would put on the riot gear and go in. I remember at times for a week on end, they'd be sitting in a room, kitted out, waiting for something to happen. It was, it was stressful. They'd be sitting there in their riot gear, not the most comfortable of gear, until something kicked off. Somebody would start cutting or whatever. In prison, if a fellow gets a cold sore, another says, you've got AIDS. There was an awful lot of depression and self-mutilation, and I think it did lead to a few suicides. I think a few fellas took their own lives on the basis that they felt this was just inevitable. The feeling was about AIDS that you had this lingering death. It wasn't just death, you'd suffer for months, shriveled up. For some prisoners with HIV, the psychological effects of segregation took a greater toll than the virus. In 1989, prison authorities argued some drug users received better health care in prison than outside. This led to better physical health. But they reported that, at Mount Joy in particular, overcrowding, segregation, continued addiction and grinding boredom all severely impacted mental health and increased the risk of suicides. Among women, cases of self-harm were so severe that segregation of female prisoners was quickly abandoned. But for men, the policy continued, regardless. Nobody sat down to say, how will this be implemented? Will it cause more damage? And it did, because they were totally and utterly lepers. Outreach worker Mara DeLacy. The segregation unit worked as follows. The ground floor was for sex offenders, paedophiles and murderers who were HIV positive. The other two floors were for ordinary prisoners who were HIV positive and, and they were mostly doubled up. The ground floor was 23 hour lockup in a lot of cases. There was no escape from the unit, no relief. If you were HIV positive, you couldn't be transferred anywhere. Then we got the agreement around the padded cell the pad wasn't punishment. If you were in a cell with one or two others, it could be absolute heaven to go by yourself into the pad for 24, 48 hours, but it had to be negotiated. Tuesday to Friday, I saw individuals on the landing or in their cells, or down the library. Your bathroom is bigger than the library. One table, two chairs, and a prison officer would stand outside. There were maybe three books. We do a lot of talking about what it'd be like to be dead, about families, what their expectations were. For the first two years, there was a huge amount of hope. And then, increasingly, more and more of them got sick. Some of them did get very sick and develop other diseases, and their resistance to disease and colds even was very low. They got all sorts of complications. A prisoner could be transferred to a medical hospital so they could be treated. At Mountjoy, temporary release was used for people who were sick. Medically, it was a disaster. That GP Owen Carey, he did his level best, but... 
Dr. Owen Carey was appointed specialist doctor looking after people with HIV and it was the first time ever that a doctor had treated prisoners in a proper doctor-patient relationship. There was one guy, Sean Doyle, was in custody when he died. He died in the basement at the Matter Hospital in a room with two prison officers and still handcuffed. His mother, she was screaming. He was dying and the prison officers were getting all defensive. It was very easy to say, guys, just take them off, please. He's not going to get out of the window. He can't even sit up. And they did. They left and Susan had her time with him. He died. His brother died. His sister died. Each from a different complication of AIDS. Probation and Welfare Officer Brian Horgan. I remember talking to one particular lad from Oliver Bond, just in Dublin 8, and he told me that half his class had died. Now, he would have left school after primary school, but he said half his class were dead and another number also infected, including himself. Dublin GP, Dr Fergus O'Kelly. I had a number of patients who died. They were all young, so I attended a good few funerals at the beginning, just to show face and show solidarity, if you like. But after a while, I decided I had to stop. One, because they were getting too frequent, and two, because I didn't want to turn up and there's Dr Death again. Client care manager, Paul Hatton. I'm not exaggerating, but I couldn't tell you the amount of funerals. I got that used to seeing people dying. In 1990, the Department of Justice in Ireland appointed Dr Enda Dooley as the first Director of Prison Medical Services. He discovered a system in dire need of reform. Healthcare wasn't a priority. Healthcare is not a priority in any prison system. Custody is. Healthcare was only useful if it got the public off the back of prison management. It wasn't done because this is right and this is something we should do. My first impression was that healthcare in prisons was functioning not in 1990 but in 1890. Two issues at that time had raised the profile of prison healthcare. In the 1980s, the development of a drug subculture was overlapping, as it does with criminality. People with drug problems were increasingly featuring in the prison system with no structured response to that. Only cold turkey. The second issue was HIV-AIDS. It was routine to segregate people who were HIV-positive in prison. Oh, it's safer. But... Uh, wasn't safer for anyone, of course, because there was a pool of people you didn't know were HIV positive in the system. From day one, I advised that this doesn't make public health sense. It doesn't make human rights sense. Staff actually believed that only fellows in the segregation unit had HIV. I said everyone could have HIV because they're all drug users. What about fellows that don't test? If you segregated, you drove the issue underground, which made it more difficult to provide adequate health care. But trying to roll back that, it doesn't take 10 weeks, it takes 10 years. So we tried to end segregation, and you'd say it couldn't happen, but it did happen. Do you know, some of them didn't want to go back. 
because they felt they got better treatment, better medical treatment with Owen Carey and a better diet and they got certain extras as well. They'd get these little containers of high energy protein drinks and believe it or not, I don't know where this came from, but they also got permission to have 7-Up. Now, where the hell 7-Up came from, or why anyone ever said that 7-Up was good for you if you had HIV, I'm sure Kerry said, Jesus, let them have whatever they want. If they want 7-Up, give them bloody 7-Up. We had lorry loads of 7-Up. Reintegration was a matter of training staff. We gradually got it across to staff that they were safer not knowing and regarding everyone as a risk. All blood spillage is high risk. Stop reacting to HIV, it could be hepatitis, it could be any other disease. So all blood spillages were treated the same way. Take all necessary precautions, don't touch it if you can, put gloves on, disinfect, have contaminated clothes properly cleaned or, or destroy them. Treat everybody the same. Members of staff, visitors, prisoners, they're all assumed to be high risk if there's blood spillage. No blood spillage, then there ain't no risk. Throughout the 1980s, any prisoner testing positive for HIV was sent to Mountjoy Prison, where the men were put in the separation unit. It held an average of 44 at any one time, all subject to a policy of segregation which lasted from 1986 until 1995, and which is now regarded as disastrous. Prison education did a lot, raising awareness, getting information. They turned back the tide. It was no easy task to convince the prisoners that people with HIV were no risk to them. The segregation unit was, in hindsight, definitely, it was a disastrous policy. It caused an awful hassle for the relationship between staff and prisoners, prisoners and the community, their own families. Every element of it had horrendous consequences. The segregation unit forged a subset of prisoners who were actually despised by the main prison population. But inside the unit, it did forge strong relationships across the board. Prison officers, prisoners, everything. And the other thing was, there was a real sense of community in there. The best prison officers were fabulous. The GP was good. In some senses, it was an incredibly bleak place to work. In another sense, it was wonderfully human and warm. Trying to put a medical management structure and a medical resource structure in place, that was the priority, but it took years, literally a decade, to achieve any improvement. Many things like HIV radiated from the mismanagement of drug abuse, but there is a limited resource for which healthcare is screaming and shouting. It is never the priority. The bigger bully in the yard will grab the resources. Healthcare is the orphan in the corner. Positive in Prison was created from a series of original oral history interviews conducted by Dr. Janet Weston in 2016 and 17 with people who worked at Mountjoy Prison during the 1980s and early 90s. The words recorded in the interviews are spoken by actors and some names have been changed. The cast includes, in order of appearance, Fergal McElheron, 
Fiona Victory, John Fagan, Stuart Graham, Chris Dunn, Michael Colgan, Aaron Geraghty, Mark Lambert, and it was narrated by Edward Hart. The production was funded by the Wellcome Trust as part of the research project Prisoners, Medical Care and Entitlement to Health in England and Ireland, 1850-2000, to 2000, carried out at University of Warwick, University College Dublin, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Dublin City University. The primary investigators were Professor Hilary Marland and Dr Catherine Cox, with Professor Virginia Berridge leading this work on HIV and AIDS. Thank you to all those who were interviewed for their time and for sharing their memories. Positive in Prison was directed by Kate Valentine with sound design by David Chiltern and is a digital drama audio production.